The Irish as a people have never been known as invaders. We have not attempted to conquer or oppress peoples in lands far away from our homes. Instead, we have set out in boats and planes and infected the worlds with song, poetry, music and laughter. We have conquered the hearts and imaginations of peoples from across the spinning globe. The path formed for our travel has not often been of choice. Some of us were sent away as a result of being deemed a criminal when we were simply trying to survive. Some of us were banished as a result of political forces declaring us unworthy of the land they sought to claim under their crown. Some of us were driven out as the very basic human necessity, food, was taken from us. And when the sun finally shone on our island, some of us chose to leave, to explore, to witness the world with our own eyes. And for a time, the sun settled again behind the high walls of power, and when we couldn't afford the crack anymore, as Australia, America and Canada gobbled up more of our friends and family. Any crack? No, ye all left. And as we placed our island in our rearview mirrors, we left behind us crying mothers, hopeful fathers and excited siblings. In front of us, there was hope, optimism, adventure and the overwhelming giddiness of being able to afford a pint back home in our local at Christmas. And if it remained unrealistic that we ourselves would return home at any point, the hope was that those who would come after us would return home, breathe the air, look around and show that when we left, we stopped looking at the ground, our chests stuck out and our chins went up. And whilst we are now the land of a thousand welcomes, we have not always found welcomes on the strange lands that we have spread to. Depending on the time which you arrived at your new home, if the stereotypes reached there before you, then you may have been seen as scum, a terrorist, useless, a drunk, an indentured servant, cannon fodder, a basic labourer, a thief or a simpleton. For many of the Irish who landed in America during the famine years, they were seen as a plague in the New World. They brought diseases, a need for housing, a need for food, and were essentially seen as a burden by those who went before them from other lands. Often, when the Irish arrived after our many weeks at sea, we were robbed, beaten and tricked out of our belongings. The New World didn't want us nor did the old one. Some of us were lucky, however. We found communities of our own, those who took our fears and hopes and made them their own. And together we prospered. It is from one of these communities our story begins. In 1867, in Hannibal, Missouri, a child was born. Her name was Margaret Tobin. This is her story.
Margaret's parents, John and Johanna, were survivors of the Irish famine and the coffin ships to America. They were part of a wave of immigration to America during the first period of industrialization. John and Johanna had seen sadness in their lives before Margaret joined them. John was a widow and had a daughter with the previous wife. Joanna too was a widow, also with a daughter. Together they had Margaret and three other children. Margaret grew up in a small cottage just a short walk from the Mississippi River. The community of Hannibal where she was raised was one filled with people of diverse backgrounds. This exposed Margaret at a very early age to different ideas from all over the world and the various levels of class and wealth or lack thereof. Within the community there was a strong group of Irish Catholic immigrants who all supported the ideas of freedom and equality for all. Margaret's parents, like the other Irish in the community, were insistent that their children have better opportunities in life than what they had had at home. They felt the best way to have opportunities was through education. As a result, they enrolled Margaret in a grammar school ran by her aunt, Mary O'Leary. This was seen as a very progressive move at the time, and she stayed in the school until she was 13. After 13, she was considered old enough to work and to help with the family finances. She took a job in a local tobacco factory. Her job was to strip tobacco leaves. Here, she really began to understand the struggles of the labouring class. She saw that those, like herself, deemed to be below the acceptable level of proper, were destined for long days, low wages and uncertainty for where their meals may come from. She held this role for a few years, and when she turned 18, Margaret decided it was time to leave home and perhaps raise her status in life, to gain the comfort levels she saw the middle classes enjoying. Her sister Mary and Mary's husband Jack had left Hannibal a few years before and had created a home in Leadville, Colorado. Margaret decided this would be where she would start her life as a woman with agency. With her brother Daniel, she shared a small cabin near her sister's blacksmith shop. Daniel worked in the mines and Margaret got work in a dry goods store, sewing carpets and drapes. In her free time, in order to make some friends in her new town, Margaret became active in the local Irish Catholic community. It was here she further witnessed the plight of those from her own community. Many of those in the Irish community were gold seekers, who were forced to abandon their dreams of finding and selling gold and had to take up jobs designed to exploit them for the maximum profits of those at the top of the food chain. 
To try and help, Margaret started to help out in the local Irish soup kitchen and in other local charities. It was here that Margaret became friendly with the miners and she was introduced by one of them to a mining engineer. A man called James Brown, also the son of Irish immigrants. James had left home at the age of 23 in the hope of striking gold and making his fortune. When Margaret met him, he had a good job, but not a penny to his name. The two got on very well and were married the following summer. Together they had two children, Lawrence and Catherine. While the children were still young, Margaret continued to volunteer for the local soup kitchen and in the charities helping the miners. James continued to scrape every penny together in the hope that one day he may be a rich man. As Margaret worked in the kitchens, she began to see more and more young men marry and their wives began to show up in the kitchens for food, then their children. This saddened her deeply and propelled her into the mindset that something must be done. She looked to local politicians and found only wealthy men sat in the seats that decided the fate of the poor. To try and combat this, Margaret became involved in an early feminist movement and established the Colorado chapter of the National American Suffrage Association. In 1893, Leadville was thrust into a deep depression almost overnight as a result of an act passed at state level and the unemployment rate of Margaret's town grew to over 90%. James at this point had been made a superintendent of a mine and life looked like it was going to be okay. This hope of course was now up in smoke and a memory rather than a possibility. He did, however, come up with a plan in a last effort of keeping some sort of employment going. He read what the act meant for the businesses in the town and he saw that the very wealthy owners of silver mines now stood a great chance of making even more money, switching to mining for gold, now that their competitors were dwindling. He used all his knowledge of engineering and devised a timber and hay bale method to hold back the sand that prevented the gold from being mined. He then took this method to the mine holders and convinced them it would shave thousands of dollars in time if they adopted his approach. They offered to buy the idea from James but he insisted he wanted shares in their business and a seat on their board. This was granted and within a few weeks the mine was shipping more than 135 tonnes of gold a day thanks to his method. Over the next 12 months he became known as one of the wealthiest miners in America. With their newfound wealth Margaret and James moved to Denver. Here they did not escape the poverty around the mines however, as the effects of the depression and the effect it was having on the mining industry was affecting the city. The city was in a social chaos. 
slums formed and children were left homeless. Not one to forget her roots, Margaret saw these issues and immediately got stuck in. She joined the reformers to build public baths and forced through the building of public parks, sports pitches and other facilities. She became known as the voice for the poor in the city and in 1901 she ran unsuccessfully for state senate. The main reason for her lack of success was being a woman. Running for the position was seen as highly unladylike. The common thought at the time was a woman's name should only appear in the newspapers on three occasions to announce her birth, her marriage and her death. She in fact pulled out of the race a few days before election day but her presence in the race opened new doors for her. She was recognised as having started to bang on the locked doors of politics and she exposed the gender bias within it. She was also praised by the poor people she represented as their voice for having brought their issues to state level. The following year, Margaret began to give vast amount of money away to charity. She and James then decided to enjoy their money themselves for a bit and embarked on a world tour. They visited France, Russia, India, Japan and visited their soul's home of Ireland. When they arrived in Ireland, they felt so at home that they began to look for a home in which they might retire. I can't tell you why they didn't buy a home in Ireland in the end. I wasn't behind the closed doors where conversations took place between husband and wife. I also can't tell you exactly why, seven years later, after a combined 23 years of marriage, James and Margaret decided to be apart and their marriage collapsed. Perhaps there was regular fighting. Perhaps someone else was involved. Perhaps bitterness had set in. Or perhaps life just happened and sometimes that's the way it goes. And whilst that thought may haunt the mind, just remember sometimes life goes the other way too. Margaret, after the marriage, felt a great sense of independence and self-power. She retained a level of wealth and departed on an adventure to Egypt, Rome, Paris and Ireland, taking with her her daughter Helen. Whilst in France, word came through that Margaret's grandson had become very ill and the family was sent for. Money not being an issue, Margaret booked the first boat back to America from Cherbourg, France, in order to be with him. The ship she booked was called the RMS Titanic. Helen decided to stay behind as she was a student in Europe and couldn't be away from her studies for too long. She was one of the few people who would soon learn that Margaret had stepped onto the foot of the journey of the damned.
On the fourth night of the journey, Margaret was lying in a brass bed reading a book with the lamp on. As the clock on the side table turned to 11.40pm, Margaret was thrown from her bed. She looked out her bedroom window and saw a massive iceberg squeezed up against her room walls. As she began to dress herself to go out and see what was happening, Corkman John Foley was running as fast as he could back up to the captain to tell him the ship was filling with water. Margaret went into the corridor to find people confused as to what had happened. As she looked around, a man ran into the corridor and shouted at the top of his voice, Get on your lifesavers and head to the boats. You have to go now. Having paid for a first-class ticket, Margaret was one of those entitled to a seat on a lifeboat. This was not one she was going to take willingly, however, as when she reached the boats and heard it was the rich who would go first, she began grabbing anyone she could and forcing them onto the boats. As she pushed a child onto one of the boats, the oarman caught her by the arm and shouted, We have to go. He pulled her into lifeboat 6 and the boat was dropped into the ocean. Margaret noticed the boat had gone too early due to the panic of the crew. The boat built for 65 people had now only 21 women, 2 men and a 12 year old boy. Once in the water, the passengers of the boat then grabbed and paddled and rowed for hours to get away from the sinking ship, which was taking everything and everyone down with it. Margaret, with her hands blistered from rowing, heard a speaker going off from the ship, asking the lifeboats with space to come back and help. She began to turn the boat around, but quartermaster Robert Hitchens ordered her to stop on the grounds the suction would pull them under the water too. His other fear was that as there were so many now in the water, they would swarm the lifeboat and sink it. Margaret pleaded with him to go back, but to no success. After about a 20-minute debate, Margaret threatened to throw him off the boat to make room for others. It was when she said this that the arguments stopped and those on lifeboat 6 found that they were no longer surrounded by the sounds of a sinking ship or the screams of those destined for death. There was just silence. It was too late. At 4.30am, cold, wet and stuck in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean with dead bodies floating in the distance, Margaret saw a flash of light burst in the distance. It was the ship, the Carpathia, the first responder to the distress call. Lifeboat 6 rode to its side and the passengers were taken off one at a time. Margaret got onto the ship and whilst tired, sore and weary from crying, she immediately began rushing through the ship's rooms looking for blankets, hot drinks and anything else which could help. She then began to see that for some of the survivors, warmth wasn't what they needed. 
As she stopped to look around, she saw that the women who survived had lost everything. Husbands, children, clothes, money, everything. Those who had left Ireland through Cove and had left with everything they had in the hope of starting a new life were now penniless and without their families and questioned what the point of surviving was. In order to help, Margaret took a bucket from the ship's kitchen and went round to all the surviving first-class women, asking them to donate what they could. Before the Carpathia reached New York, Margaret had raised $10,000 for the lower-class survivors. It was as a result of her actions that Margaret gained national attention. With her new fame, Margaret was asked by the Miners' Association to become their voice for their rights. The miners were striking against new regulations which sought to exploit them and the mine owners were hiring gangs to attack those who refused to work. On April 20, 1914, in Ludlow, one gang opened fire on miner families and killed 20 men, women and children. Margaret couldn't stand by and watch this happen as she began to deliver speeches to promote the miners' rights. As she was a national icon, she discouraged people from buying from the mines until the miners received better conditions. This boycott worked somewhat and Margaret became the key reason life got better for the miners. Margaret then spent a lot of her time in Newport. Newport at this time was the pinnacle of the American upper class. It was in fact the first American town to have a golf course and a tennis club. As Newport had a big wealthy female population, they looked to Margaret to be their voice. She became involved in the National Women's Trade Union League, which was based there. The group stood out to her as it sought for the rights of women in all classes of American society. She then travelled America spreading the word of women's rights. In 1914 she organised the Conference of Great Women, an event which led to the more aggressive suffrage campaigns. This ramped-up aggression largely started after one of Margaret's impassioned speeches. Although the movement grew and gained at a rapid pace, it soon was halted as World War I broke out. Hearing of the suffering of those in Europe, Margaret dropped everything and left for France. Here, she got involved in a series of movements to help children, soldiers and the innocent of war. For her efforts, she was awarded the French Legion of Honour. After the war, Margaret stayed in Europe and explored as much of it as she could. She became a great lover of art, music and theatre. 
She took this new great love back to America and spent some time in New York as a successful actress and singer. On October 26, 1932, whilst sleeping, Margaret passed from this side of reality to the other. She was buried next to her distant husband, James, a few days later. Although they had never reconciled their marriage, they had remained close friends. A part of Margaret's story can be seen in the 1997 movie Titanic, where she is played by Kathy Bates. Today's music was written, performed and produced by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you want to help support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish or leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan Isanam Dum, Gurav Mahakut, Slonanish.